have a couple of interesting facts to share. But before I do, I'm going to ask you not to remember them. That's important. Don't remember them. Just take them in and then let them go, okay? All right, here they are. First, Mars is known as the red planet because of the iron oxide, that's rust, that's in its soil. Here's another one. Snails have the most teeth of any animal, between 1,000 and 12,000 of them, actually. And finally, at any given time, there are roughly 1,800 thunderstorms raging on Earth with 100 lightning strikes per second. Pretty interesting facts, but I hope you didn't waste precious brain activity committing them to memory because technology will remember for you. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Whether you ask Google, search your computer's hard drive, or thumb through an encyclopedia old school, it's easy to look up stuff you can't recall or don't know. If you want to hear Seth's list of facts again, for example, this show is archived. But it wasn't always like this. The information age grew slowly. It started with better ways of organizing knowledge. In this episode, the tools and tricks that have relieved our brains from the necessity to remember. Find out whether our accumulation of terabytes of data is making biological memory obsolete, or is it boosting our brain's ability to use information? This episode of Big Picture Science is Forget About It. We often hear that if you want to be happy, you should be in the moment. Okay, that's fine for those of you who meditate, but for the rest of us, the past and the future keep butting in. You know, you try to be here now, but find yourself wondering about whether you turned off the stove when you left this morning, shut the garage door, or, or worrying that your crazy cousin will show up unannounced for the holidays again. It's natural that our minds wander from the present. After all, evolution shaped our brains to include memory. I'm David Eagleman. I'm a neuroscientist at Stanford. The reason we remember is so that we can better predict the future. That's the whole reason we have memory. It's why we write anything down is so that we can make better simulations of what will happen next. What and how our brains remember profoundly shapes our lives. But consider that Dr. Eagleman said we have memory and we write things down. They seem like the same thing, right? But they're not. Jotting down an idea is not the same as memorizing it. It's outsourcing your memory to ink and paper, or if you use a computer, to magnetic disk. Seth, which one do you use? Ink and paper or magnetic disk? Well, I use them both, actually. But, you know, if I'm on an airplane or having lunch, I usually use pen and paper. I, I don't know. I somehow, it's easier, you know, just physically. And I find that the ideas are a little better that way. <laughs> well, whether you write with pen and paper at lunch or not, or use another external device, it's not the same as biological memory. Now, the ancient Greeks often memorized, you know, really lengthy poems like the Odyssey or the Iliad. Uh, so how did we come to rely on memory aids? Well, it goes back to the fact that the brain, even the brains of the ancient Greeks, could only remember so much. So the benefits of writing things down were quite obvious. Writing itself, which began about 3500 B.C. in Mesopotamia, put information at our fingertips, well, at their fingertips, but, of course, that wouldn't be very helpful if everything was a jumbled mess. We had to get organized. Here's where type A personalities get revenge for all the jokes about being retentive. Ideas that are well-organized can be retrieved quickly. 
like plans for an aqueduct or a method for collecting taxes. Bingo, you've got the growth of civilization. Okay, it's not quite that simple, but as anyone who favors ring binders knows, you can achieve great things if you can find valuable information fast. Yeah, do you, do you have a lot of ring binders, Molly? <laughs> I think you probably know the answer to that. <laughs> now, you'd think that the first method for sorting ideas would be one that draws on, well, one of the first sequences we learned. After all, what is more intuitive than the alphabet? Developed by Phoenicians between three and 4,000 years ago, it's had a lot of time to instill order, and it has for us. Imagine trying to find oregano or cumin in the supermarket spice section without the alphabet. But had you gone to an ancient library, you wouldn't find the scrolls arranged in a sequence of, I don't know, Athens, Byzantium, Corinth, Delphi, Eritrea. The Greeks, and even the Romans, as innovative as some of them were, weren't inspired by alphabetical sequence. It's very interesting how something we regard as totally normal took centuries and centuries and centuries to develop. Alphabetical order took off in the Middle Ages when a lot more books were made and a lot more people were reading them. Really alphabetical order to sort stuff is used when there are large amounts of things. And here's a surprising thing. Alphabetical order seems intuitive, but it was considered random, even scandalous. Imagine putting the word angeli, or angels, before deus, or God, simply because A comes before D, says social historian Judith Flanders. The neutrality of alphabetical order made it radical because it democratized access to knowledge, she says, and she knows something about being organized. She's the author of A Place for Everything, The Curious History of Alphabetical Order. But we wonder, since we rely on computers now to sort information, will alphabetical order become irrelevant? Judith, let's go back to ancient times. Did the Great Library of Alexandria there in northern Egypt around 2,300 years ago, what is that, 250 B.C. or so, use alphabetical ordering? I mean, before it burned down, it was estimated to contain several hundred thousand scrolls. So, okay, you walk into the library, you hope to pick up a good beach read. How would you find things there? I mean, no one can memorize a quarter of a million scrolls. We do think that possibly the Great Library of Alexandria was the first to use a very rudimentary form of alphabetical order. Today, we tend to think that there's only one kind of alphabetical order. You start with the first letter, you move on to the second letter, you move on to the third letter, and so on. But actually, historically, alphabetical order developed much more slowly. And at the Great Library of Alexandria, they probably used first letter only alphabetical order. So all the scrolls with an author whose name began with A are there. All the scrolls with the author whose name begins with B are here. And there is no further subdivision. Okay, so the Great Library of Alexandria seems to have at least used first letter organization, possibly within a small set of subject categories like law and poetry and that kind of thing. Well, what about the Romans? Well, I mean, the Romans were very practical. I, you know, they didn't develop new ideas particularly. Uh, even though they would build viaducts and stuff like that, you know, they were great at organization in some ways. Well, you're looking at this as 
though alphabetization is the great good, and we have been working towards this historically through the centuries, there are many methods of organization that don't involve the alphabet or involve the alphabet as a secondary sorting tool that we continue to use today. And the idea that this is the only sensible sorting tool is kind of regressive. The Romans were not remotely interested in alphabetization. They hardly used it. Instead, they used geographical, they used chronological, they used, very importantly, hierarchical. All these sorting orders are sorting orders we kind of know about and don't think about today. For example, geographical, let's take us back three decades, when we still use telephone books. Phone books are not primarily alphabetical. They're primarily geographical. Only then do they break down, and even then, not to alphabetical order, it's commercial and residential. The third level of categorization is alphabetical. It's funny how you, you, you don't even think about that when you use the phone book, right? You, you turn and, to the part where your city is, and you start there. And equally, an electoral register we think of as being alphabetical, but of course, primarily it's geographical. Then it's chronological, only people over the age of 18. And then it's alphabetical. I think you mentioned in your book that uh, not so long ago, a little over 100 years or so, Harvard and Yale universities would list their students not necessarily in alphabetical order, but on the basis of the social status of their families. Yeah, that's about 200 years ago. I would like to give them a little bit of credit for get, getting themselves together. But um, indeed, hierarchical sorting orders were hugely important historically. In Britain, the Doomsday Book in 1086, which was the first book put together of land tenure, who owned what for tax purposes, was in geographical order and then in hierarchical order. So you started with the most important barons and nobles, and then you worked your way through the clergy, and then the prosperous middle section, until finally you got to the smallest landowners. I, I think that, you know, the thing about alphabetical order is that we learned it very early. Kids learn their ABCs often long before they're able to read or write. It has a tune, a jingle with it, so it, it's almost muscle memory right? You, you don't have to think about, well, this begins with a B, so that's going to come before anything beginning with an M or an N. Well, there are two parts. And again, we've merged them in our heads because they happen at the same time. We learn the alphabet, as you say, by the little alphabet song. And that is important in teaching us to read. We need to be able to recognize all the letters of the alphabet. What we do not need to learn to read, is to have the alphabet in any particular order. It wouldn't matter if we knew that or not, as long as we could recognize all the letters. But because we learn them in an order, we have also borrowed this order to use for a separate thing, which is categorization and sorting. I have to say, when I first went to Japan, something I did the second day I was there was to find a department store and go look at the typewriter section, because I wanted to know, you know what they do about the fact that they have these ideograms in place of letters. And, and it seems like a tremendous societal burden not to have an alphabet. Well, of course, 
we are speaking from a place of bias because to us, something neutral like the alphabet, like a typewriter, is the default. For thousands of years, there's been a perfectly efficient system for Chinese, for Japanese categorizations that have worked terribly well. Certainly in China, they invented systemic sorting of reference books, of of encyclopedias and sort of proto-dictionaries a thousand years, well, 600 years, before the Western world did. They had a perfectly good sorting system. It just isn't ours. You know, it seems, maybe from the outside, that alphabetical order is completely fair because, as you say, we don't even know how it turned out that, you know, A, B, C were the first three letters. But I can say from personal experience that I don't think it's so fair. If you choose a name for your kid because, I don't know, you like the way it sounds, you know, Rumpelstiltskin kind of rolls off the, off the tongue, you probably don't think much about where it would fit in an alphabetical list. But my name, well, first and last names, begin with letters that are far down in the alphabet. And that meant that I frequently lost out at school when they were choosing kids to do something or other. Uh, it was actually, a, you know, I thought of it even, even as a kid as a burden to be among the last to be picked for anything just because of an accident of the alphabet. Well, on the other hand, you can look at somebody I know whose name is Anne-Marie Adams, and she complained that she was always the first to be called on. (laughs) It's a pervasive bias. Well, (laughs) let me just jump ahead a couple of thousand years here, uh, beyond the invention of the alphabet to, to today, because, you know, one thing computers can do is they can go through an enormous amount of information in very short time. So, uh, you know, I just sort of wonder whether alphabetization has reached its X, Y, Zs, as it were, that it's sort of like delivering milk by horse cart, and that organization is less important today. I mean, do kids still need to learn their ABCs? My understanding is they still do learn them, and I think we still do enough stuff on paper, and kids are still called on, you know, in the class, register by alphabetical order. But it may be alphabetization is on its way out. Alphabetization really comes to prominence in the Middle Ages, in the end of the 13th and in the 14th century, it begins to flourish. So it may be that in a few hundred years' time, there will be a historian who says, yeah, you know, it was an 800-year phase. Well, Judith, I have to say, when I was learning to type a long, long time ago, you know, I thought that they ought to reorganize uh, the, well, if they couldn't reorganize the keys on the keyboard, at least maybe reorganize the letters that are used to spell words so that uh, it wasn't such a tangle of my fingers trying to type uh, English words. But you know why the keyboard is in the order it's in. I, I think it's just a consequence of the mechanics of the typewriters, that the keys would jam. It was actually to slow you down, not to speed you up. Well, it was successful. <laughs> <laughs> Judith Landers, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Judith Flanders is a social historian, and she's the author of A Place for Everything, The Curious History of Alphabetical Order. Seth, you said that we've retained alphabetical order 
in a way that's akin to muscle memory. But I have to say that sometimes when I'm looking something up <laughs> by the alphabet, I have to sing the song to myself. Do you have to do that? No, not for the alphabet. There, there are plenty of other things I have to sing the songs to, particularly when I'm trying to retrieve the third stanza of a song or something like that. You know, Judith uh, and I talked very briefly about the keyboard uh, order, the QWERTY keyboard as it is, QWERTY being you know, the first six letters you see on the top row, alphabetical roll on your keyboard. Uh, that goes back to these mechanical typewriters. And, of course, the reason they did that is, you know, it was just the mechanics of the typewriter. If, if you type too quickly, you would clash the keys. The little metal arms that the keys were on, right, would, would hit and you'd have to unjam them. Well, actually, you and Judith said that, and it sounded like you were saying different things, but you were actually agreeing with each other, and that wasn't clear. So the idea is that the, the keyboard is laid out that way so that you will slow down so that the keys don't jam up. Yeah, exactly. Well, for those of you who still record ideas on paper, you may already understand how a seemingly dull piece of office equipment turbocharged the information revolution. We have a couple of them in our basement. That's next. And it's okay if you don't remember this episode of Big Picture Science. It's perfectly fine to forget about it. You know, I can still remember my Boy Scout law from when I was about 11 years old. We all had to learn it. Okay, let us let us hear the list. What was what was the Boy Scout law? Boy Scout law was a scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Didn't have to write it down. And have you been able to uphold all those qualities all these years? Well, I'm not the Boy Scout anymore. <laughs> I, I upheld most of them, I would say. Most of them, yes. Well, we're talking about the impact that our increasing outsourcing of information to, well, whatever it may be, tablets, scrolls, notebooks, computer hard drives, has had on our biological memory. But also, what we got in the bargain using external storage has helped us to do more, faster, Better. And all of that powered the modern age. The mid-19th century began to feed on information the way steam engines did coal. But where do you put all that paper? The correspondence, the production schedules, the orders for steel or feathered hats. The modern workplace needed a logical storage system. And it found one. If a company makes a copy of every contract and then puts it in a file, shouldn't the copy be in that file? Yes, I suppose it should. It should, right? Uh, unless, of course, it's somehow been misfiled. Uh, misfiled? Yes, misfiled. How could somebody misfile something? What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file. That's all you have to do. I never misfiled anything. I'm sure that you didn't. That guy knows that the key to a well-run office is, and, and was up until the arrival of computers, a piece of office furniture so patently dull it belies the impact that it had on the information age. I'm Craig Robertson, and I'm an associate professor of media studies at Northeastern University in Boston. 
Well, it's like any invention, um, the filing cabinet is very much a product of its time and its place. So that time was the late 19th century, and that place was not just the office, but the office in a corporation. And what that means is that the scale of production has increased dramatically. So what you need is access to information. Which was recorded on paper, lots of paper. If it was loose paper, it was stored in piles, right? Or put on a spike, right? So it was sort of in piles, but not in really any order. And then if you wanted to find a particular bit of paper, you would look through the pile and try to pull it out and not disrupt the pile of paper. And so the solution in the past to that kind of problem had been to store relevant bits of paper in bound volumes, in books, right? As the amount of information, the amount of paper increased, books also became completely impractical. The Filing Cabinet, A Vertical History of Information, is Dr. Robertson's book about a transformative invention of the 1890s, inspired by the library card catalog that had been invented just a few decades prior, that pulled the 19th century office into the modern age. Craig, what problems of the 19th century office was the filing cabinet designed to solve? And I'm imagining a figure like Ebenezer Scrooge writing something in his ledger. It would be a big, thick ledger. He'd be writing all of the accounts in pen. And that account book or that ledger would be really key, but it would all be bound together. All the information would be bound together. As as Scrooge wrote in that ledger, right, like he's writing it today, you know, on September the 13th so-and-so happened. The next day, September the 14th, I dealt with someone else. So it's arranged chronologically. So if you're trying to figure out the sort of the history of your of your business with one particular client, you're having to scroll through all these different pages. And in part, it's your own personal memory that's aiding you finding right, the relevant bits of information. Now, Craig, you're using the word information, and we're all familiar and comfortable with that word. I mean, it's the information age. In the mid-19th century or in the late 19th century when the filing cabinet made its debut, was the word information the word that people would use to characterize what was being put into filing cabinets? Yeah, well, one of the things I argue, one of the things I think is so important about the filing cabinet is it's through the use of the filing cabinet that the word information sort of starts to circulate with its modern meaning. So, in fact, prior to about the middle of the 19th century, information often referred to was almost like a verb, right? The idea of being educated, of, of being informed, to be informed, right? And it's only slowly through the 19th century that information becomes like this a name for an object or a thing. There's this change in an understanding of how much information we need to know about our economy, about our population. This is the moment when passports come in, right? And border control comes in. And so what's going on is sort of as we enter in the to the 20th century into the modern world, we need information, right? On a scale that previously societies haven't gathered and collected. So what you see when you open up a file drawer in my argument, is you see information. What used to be a bound page in a book is now a loose piece of paper. So information becomes something that can exist at the end of your fingertips. Mm -hmm. I find filing cabinets quite intuitive. I can feel myself going through the tabs. Like what you would do, you'd have all that you have all these files and you just go through with your finger, right? And you have a sense at one glance you know, all the files that you have, and then you understand the order, how they're ordered. 
um, it's just easy to find things. You know, it really is. And, um, you know, and that phrase at a glance, right, was how a lot of filing equipment companies advertise the filing cabinet. And what sort of goes from this is not only is it intuitive, right, is it that this is where the filing cabinet isn't this benign and inert thing, that what the filing cabinet is doing, right, it's guiding us. Like that's how the filing cabinet was sold, right? It was sold almost as like a machine that did the thing the remembering and the thinking for us. So then it's our fingers that are doing the work, not our brain, right? Because the filing cabinet itself, right, is the brain. It's doing the thinking. Surely it wasn't described as a machine though, was it? Well, this is the crazy thing. It was, right? I mean, as ridiculous as it is, it doesn't, it doesn't fit our idea of anything that is mechanical or a machine. But again, the moment it emerges at the beginning of the 20th century, this is an era besotted with the idea of machines and machines equal progress and modernity. So therefore to sell the filing cabinet, right, to make it something that um, people would see value in, it was referred to as a machine that could then be operated by hand, by those fingertips. One of the charms of your book about the history of the filing cabinet are the the images of the advertisements that you include, and some of them are quite amusing. I'd like you to read the advertisements that were touting the verticality and the strength of the uh, of the filing cabinet. But first, can you give us a setup here? The filing cabinet was marketed as something quite modern. What was the PR angle here? The one I think that captures it the most is a company that was called Shaw Walker that came out of Michigan. And their slogan through the first half of the um, 20th century was built like a skyscraper, right? That the filing cabinet was built like a skyscraper. And all that meant was it was like a skeleton structure that you would then insert drawers in and put sides and a top on. And so you had these crazy series of ads. Craig, can you read one of those ads? And sorry, and maybe describe the the picture that goes with it, the drawing that goes with it. It's pretty amusing. To portray this, to put this across, um, when they talk about this, the strength of the filing cabinet, there's a drawing of a filing cabinet with an open drawer and a man in a suit is jumping onto the open drawer. And when it comes to rigidity, the same man in his suit continues to use the filing cabinet as sort of a for, as a piece of exercise equipment. And he's doing something that's sort of like a pull up on an open drawer, right? And the idea is that both these things are showing that nothing can budge the filing cabinet. So when they're talking about the strength of the filing cabinet, the text beside it says, jump into an open drawer of a Shaw Walker steel letter file with all your might and main, then jump out. The drawer is just the same as it was. It still continues to run silently, smoothly, and speedily. This extreme test is proof of Shaw Walker skyscraper construction. (laughs) You know, what strikes one about these ads is that they seem to be appealing to a kind of stereotypical masculinity, and not in a subtle way, <laughs> with the image of the skyscraper uh, behind the drawing of the of the file cabinet. But yet it was women who ended up using the file cabinet, in fact, being the filers. Yeah, I think that these, what these ads do, like, as you said, they, they really do convey that, you know, these men in their suits in an office, uh, you know, their masculinity cannot be questioned, right? You know, and I think the way I understand that is what I see in these ads, therefore, is a response to the sort of the anxiety 
created by the arrival of women in the office, right? So prior to the 20th century, most clerks were men. What we're seeing is like to say, just because women are in the office now, that shouldn't devalue the work that men do in the office. You address the role of the filing cabinet in what you call in your book, the ascendancy of the importance of information. So information was becoming more important. Uh, People were collecting more of it so that they could run their businesses. I wonder if you could talk about the role of the filing cabinet with regard to our memory. It was described as automatic memory. So you could put all this information away and you could store it. I'm wondering, did that change our relationship to memory and to forgetting? I know that's a very broad question, but it strikes me that here's a time in history where we thought we can just remember everything. We'll write it down and we'll file it away. Yeah, I think it, the, the key part is that what you're talking about there is that that sort of idea of scale, right? That suddenly, you know, what the filing cabinet did is it allowed the scale of what could possibly be remembered, right? The things that could potentially be remembered, that increased, like, to, at the time to what seemed like a vast scale. Like, suddenly, you know, we, we have drawers or we fill up that filing cabinet, let's get another four-drawer filing cabinet. Or if we <laughs> want to go really crazy, we get a five-drawer filing cabinet, right? You know, and we can just keep storing this stuff. I mean, there is a limit, right, in the sense that filing cabinets take up space, right? But still, the filing cabinet definitely encourages the collection of more and more information. Is part of this trajectory of storing information, is part of what's fueling it is this idea more information is better. We can control information if we break it down into smaller and smaller bites, something called a granular certainty. Then maybe you can talk about that. And that somehow that will bring deeper understanding. But that hasn't necessarily happened. I mean, do you feel like today we have control of information or we have any deeper understanding of the world because we have so much information? No, but um, but that's <laughs> definitely the goal that we've come to aspire to, right? And so I think this idea, like I, I coined this phrase granular certainty to really try to capture what I thought the filing cabinet made innovative, another thing the filing cabinet made innovative in terms of our relationship to information and also to connect this development to the idea of efficiency. So granular certainty is the idea that if you break things down into small pieces, right, they become easier to control. The outcome is likely to become more certain. And, you know, in the early 20th century, think of the assembly line, the, you know, Henry Ford's assembly line, right? This is the logic that the filing cabinet's part of that, you know, if we can break information down, if we can break knowledge down into small pieces, it's going to help us have sort of more mental dexterity and allow us to make connections that we couldn't, we may not previously have been able to do or see, right? But of course, knowledge is a really messy thing, right? You know, the world is a really messy thing. And so we will never succeed in that sense. But I think that's the sort of aspiration that has guided the development of information technology. Then finally, you know, whenever a new invention is introduced, it makes the previous one obsolete, of course. And sometimes we don't even know what we've lost in the process. Was there something that we lost when the filing cabinet came on the scene? Yeah, I think so. We lost what advocates argued was its its plus, right? So its plus was it got rid of all extraneous context, right? So it reduced everything to these small specific chunks of knowledge that we call bits of knowledge that we can call information, right? So we, so we lose the sense of context. And I think 
The way I can explain that best, perhaps, is the difference between finding information on a page in a book and finding it as a piece of paper in a folder. So again, if the correspondence for a business is organized in a bound volume, right, and kept, you know, chronologically, when you're looking for the letter from a particular person, you are scrolling through, right, all the business activity that's happened either side of it. So sort of subconsciously, you're getting a sense of the larger context of the business, right? Whereas when you are in a filing cabinet, you're just getting that one piece of information or that one client correspondence isolated and separate from everything else. So I think, you know, and we still see this today, right? In the last decade or so, we've had the celebration of big data, right? And big data works by extracting and removing all the context from it. So I think that's what disappears is sort of the knowledge, right? And the value that we can give to knowledge is this well-rounded or, or more rounded thing versus the very efficient specificity of information. Craig Robinson, thank you so much for talking to us about the history of the filing cabinet. Thank you, it's been a lot of fun and I appreciate your interest in the book. Craig Robertson is an associate professor of media studies at Northeastern University in Boston, and he's the author of The Filing Cabinet, A Vertical History of Information. Well, I mean, you can see how significant the filing cabinet really was, and the success of the filing cabinet, I think, is manifest in the fact that today's file system on any computer is based on folders, you know, with tabs, just like that thing in your office, right? They didn't have to do it that way. They could have just had a list on the page and you click on whatever you want. But instead, they have files with stuff in them. I think that the point is that, you know, now suddenly information was right there in the office in that steel box over there, and you could open up a drawer and go find out something. I mean, any, you know, television show you watch where they have to get some secret information, what do they do? They just go to a file cabinet and are able to find it right away. I love file cabinets. Do you? Well, I mean, only in mahogany, of course. No, I, I, I do like file cabinets, but I have to say they take up valuable real estate in my home office. I love the tactile feel. I, I love feeling paper. I love looking at everything at once. And I find that they're just very easy to go through. You pull. I love the sound of the drawer coming out. And then you can just flip through all of those files and, you know, sometimes see your your mother's or your grandparents' handwriting. I just... I like that. I mean, I, there's something quite generic about information on the web. Well, it's like photo albums, right? You know that this photo album includes your last Christmas vacation, but as you're going through it, you also see photos you hadn't thought about for a while. So indeed, there's that. On the other hand, I got to say, you know, my hard drive, I, I, I don't remember where I stored some bit of information about Melvin. All I do is type Melvin into the search engine and computers are so fast they essentially go through the entire file cabinet in a matter of seconds looking for whatever you type in. So that's, to me, sort of an advantage. Well, from paper files to computer files, you may feel that the need for memorization is going the way of the stone tablet. Maybe, but neuroscientist David Eagleman thinks offloading information is actually a good thing. Kids now can consume a huge intellectual diet and they don't have to worry about memorizing it. And who cares? That's wasted space. 
Next, where your brain stores memories and why it might not be so bad to let the machines remember for us. The title of this episode, Forget About It, on Big Picture Science. information age, but that might have been otherwise if the facts and ideas that have accumulated over the centuries had remained in a jumbled heap. I heard an amusing story about one guy some time ago who claimed he put all his paper into a barrel and said, that way I know where everything is. Well, bully for him, but the modern age required more efficient, more detailed forms of organization. Every time we snap paper into a ring binder or hit Control S on our computer, we rely a little less on biological memory. But our lives couldn't function well any other way. Who can memorize an entire shopping list, never mind the details of a contract? But is it a problem that rote memorization is going the way of the Rolodex? Are our brains somehow losing something? if we can't commit the Iliad or even a short modern poem to memory. Well, Stanford University neuroscientist David Eagleman says, nope, having machines remember for us gives our brains a boost, due in part to the biological limits of memory. David, we picture the human brain as a device for cogitating, for thinking grand thoughts. But we mostly, I think, use it to remember things, you know, kind of a wetware equivalent to a file cabinet is thinking fundamentally different than remembering things? The reason we remember is so that we can better predict the future. That's the whole reason we have memory. It's why we write anything down is so that we can make better simulations of what will happen next. Okay. All right. So the memories help us to plot the future or what to do next. It's a, it's a basis for action. That, that's exactly right. And by the way, when people get brain damage such that they have amnesia, they can't write down new memories, they also cannot simulate possible futures. So if you take someone who has lost their memory and you say, okay, look, picture yourself on um, a beach vacation next month and where will you go and what will it look like? They're unable to picture that because simulation of the future is the same as remembrance of the past. It's the same mechanisms involved. Well, that sounds like economy of hardware in some sense. That's right. (laughs) Well, there's a thing, you know, I think of oral tradition where people in ancient Greece were able to memorize the Iliad or the Odyssey or uh, eventually maybe the Bible. Did that require a certain kind of brain or could anybody do that if, you know, you had to? Almost certainly it required a special kind of brain, meaning there's a big distribution in the population of memory skills. You know, as we know, some people are great at it, some people are terrible at it. So, so almost certainly the Greeks and Romans that are famous for that kind of thing, the, the, the bards, were those who were particularly good at it. But also it's important to note that they didn't have a lot of the other stuff taking up their brain that, that we might nowadays. So um, there, was just, there was just plenty more time and room to sit and memorize those things. Well, th- well, that makes me wonder, is there any limit to how much you can remember? I mean, people say, you know, it's very commonly said, we only use 1% of our brain or 10% of our brain. I can hardly believe that's true. If it were, our brains would be the size of walnuts. <laughs> that, that, that's correct. It is a myth. Um, it's a very sticky myth, and I think the reason is because it gives people the impression, wow, if I only use 10% of my brain, I could be so much smarter. But, but in fact, it's a made-up myth. Your brain is 
every, every neuron in your brain is screaming with activity around the clock, even when you're asleep. So there, there's nothing more to be used. As far as limitations go, you know, there are memory contests, for example, where someone memorizes the digits of pi, 3.14156921, and so on. And, you know, there are, we do see that people get to, I don't remember what it is now, 50,000 digits, 60,000 digits, and that's the world record. So there is some limitation to it. But, you know, I'll just mention when people memorize pi, everybody who's a champion on it has something called synesthesia, where they have a mixture of the senses. So each number to them has a color, a size, a gender, a personality, this sort of thing. This is not uncommon. It's about 3% of the population has this. So when they're memorizing the digits, there's a whole story landscape there, and that's how they can memorize it. If you don't have synesthesia, there's no way you'd be able to memorize 50,000 digits. That recalls the, uh, the time we interviewed somebody about memory who talked about the memory palace. In fact, he had written a book about that. And that you know, the trick to remembering, for example, all the cards dealt off a deck of cards was to associate each of those cards with a, you know, part of your house. This is the walk-in closet and this is, you know, the living room and so forth. So then you travel through the house in your brain and you remember all these cards. That's exactly right. And the reason the memory palace works for everyone is because spatial extent to us is highly important. So where things are and how things relate geographically to one another is such a fundamental part of our brain that all we're doing then is taking something abstract like the cards from the deck and tying it to those locations. So that's a very effective method, one among many, for memorizing long strings of things. Well, that sounds similar to an idea I read about recently in a book by Jeff Hawkins called uh, A Thousand Brains. And he said that, well, look, your brain is taking in input all the time from your eyes and your, all your senses. And not only does it remember what it's seen, but it, it puts those memories into some sort of grid, you know, where they are. And so if that's the case, then I have a grid of my house, of course, right? I can think of all the places in my house. I can walk through it in my mind. And so you're saying, well, if you store this additional information, you know, with three of clubs or whatever that now you have a tool to get to it. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's just, as I said, your brain really cares about storing spatial information, and so this is just a way of taking advantage of things that are already there. Storing spatial information, I assume that had evolutionary uh, value when we were out on the savannas a long time ago. Yeah, where, where's the food? Where's the coconuts? Where's the water? Yes. <laughs> well, well, more and more, at least the last three or 4,000 years, uh, we've kind of been offshoring memory to, well, in that case, writing. You know, you could write things down. You, you didn't have to remember everything. Does that free up our neocortex? That's the big folded part of the brain, I believe, you know, that, that we can use for something else. I mean, that, that, that's exactly right. And, and by the way, when, when the printing press was invented in about the 1440s, um, several people lamented this. They thought, oh, my gosh, if we write everything down, then no one's going to memorize things anymore. You can just go to a book in the library and find the answer instead of memorizing it. And, of course, this is the same lamentation that we hear with the Internet and so on. But, in fact, we are, you know, I'm very cyber-optimistic about this point. Kids now are so much smarter than any previous generation, and it's precisely because they can consume a huge intellectual diet and they don't have to worry about memorizing everything. I mean, look, Seth, when we grew up, you know, we memorized our friends' phone numbers and so on. Well, kids now don't do that and possibly can't, and who cares? That's wasted space, so... Good for them that they can remember 
oh, I just have pointers to objects. So I know that there was a really interesting TED talk on XYZ, and I know how to get to that. Bang. That's that's the kind of storage that we want. We're, we're no longer sages or librarians. Is that, I mean, is, <laughs> so does anybody know how memory works? I mean, you know, I've seen those diagrams in old books, right? And there's a picture of the brain or a drawing of the brain, and one is labeled, you know, this is vision, over here is hearing, over there that's porterhouse or whatever, right? <laughs> is that true? I mean, certain parts of the brain remember different stuff? Um, not Okay, great, not exactly. So in the 1920s, there were experiments where uh, a Harvard neurobiologist trained rats to run mazes, and then he tried cutting out little parts of their brain. He thought, okay, if I can find the right part of the brain to cut out, then the rat won't remember how to run the maze anymore. And the experiment was a total failure, and its failure was its lasting success because what became understood from there is that memory is distributed around the brain. It's not stored in one spot. I think it's similar to the way that, you know, your emails, when you pull it up on that monitor, your emails are actually stored on scattered servers all over the planet. And it's the same with memories. It's not, it's not in one spot of the brain. We do know a heck of a lot about how memory works, but there are still big mysteries uh, to be had there. I'll just mention very quickly that all the current theories about memory have to do with strengthening the connections between neurons what are called synapses. You dial the strength up, you dial it down, and that changes the behavior of the activity flow across the network of neurons. And so that's where all the attention has been for the last 40 years or so. But the reason we pay so much attention to synapses is pretty much because that's what we can measure. There are many other things that change in the brain, including the shapes of neurons, the molecules that are happening you know, the receptors for chemicals that are expressed, the number and distribution of those receptors, what's happening internally in the cell, all the way down to the genome, which genes are getting expressed and which are getting suppressed. All that's changing. It's just that that's much more difficult to look at and study. Now, why are some memories stickier than others? I mean, when I first met the love of my life, you know, I, I would remember that. Or when I, when I was mugged in the subway or something, and there's some usually traumatic events where yeah. you, you just can't get rid of the memory. Well, hopefully that didn't apply to your first love. But yes, the, anything that's emotionally salient is what is written down. And the reason, so the thing that is often overlooked is that most experiences flow right through us and we don't write it down at all. We're like a sieve. And that's because the brain actually doesn't need to write down most everything. Like, you know, where I parked my car last week or what the exact wording of a conversation I had last month. It doesn't really matter. All I need is the gist of most things and most things I don't need at all. So... Anything that is tagged with a high emotional salience, whether love or trauma or whatever, that's what gets that's what gets written down because those are the things that are most important for navigating our future. Okay, I'll buy that. But what about all those uh, rock and roll song lyrics that are taking up space in my cranium? Right? I mean, <laughs> those meant a lot to you when you were a teenager. Um, did, yeah, when you first learned. Now, now, if I played you a new rock and roll song now, and I said, Seth, you gotta, this, all the kids are listening to this, it probably wouldn't stick. No, and, and, yeah. and it doesn't. <laughs> well, finally, David, in an age where people can pull a phone out of their pocket and answer just about any question, and people in tech here in the Silicon Valley occasionally talk about how we might eventually have a memory chip implanted in our brains, you look skeptical to that. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know whether it'll happen or not. But even so, what is the advantage of memorizing anything anymore? I mean, is rote learning just, you know, totally passe? I think rote learning is, is on its way out. There are some cases where it's useful. But, you know, as I said, we, we remember where to find the information. And it's an extraordinarily 
useful thing that we're we're taking on nowadays. So the phone is like your exo brain. It's the external brain, and it's. Um, I'm constantly running into kids who say something that's so smart, and I think, how the heck did they know this? And they say, oh, I learned that on a TED Talk or whatever. But, you know, when we grew up, we had whatever hometown we were in. We had whatever teacher we had. And that's essentially all the knowledge we had was from that teacher. Maybe we'd go to the Encyclopedia Britannica. But the fact that you can access anybody, you can access the best person in the world giving a TED Talk in 15 minutes summarizing what they know it's absolutely terrific that we are raising children with this, and that's what's going into their storehouse of knowledge, and they know where they can find these things. I always thought I was born 50 years too soon. Yeah. It seems that's the case. <laughs> well, David Eagleman, thank you so very much for speaking with us. It's great to see you again, Seth. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist at Stanford University. Well, Seth, when we look at the big picture here, it's clear that there are some things we don't do anymore, that we don't memorize anymore, and we may feel as though we've lost something. But one of the questions we asked in the show is whether our brains are somehow hurting as a consequence. Well, I don't think so. I mean, consider what Dr. Eagleman said about the fact that, you know, we, we offshore a bunch of memory, but on the other hand, now we can spend more time thinking about all those data. I, I remember 30 years ago having to memorize, well, I did memorize the telephone numbers of all my friends, so I don't have to do that anymore. I can spend more time talking to them about things. But are you certain that we really haven't lost much? Well, we have lost something. I mean, my roommate, you know, could quote Shakespeare. I mean, there are benefits to actually memorizing certain things. And you know, the whole point of education is to get enough stuff into your head that you know so that you can apply that to whatever situation is in your life. Well, I think the point that was made in the show is one of the things we do lo lose by breaking information up to its little bits is we sometimes lose the context. On the other hand, you have more information to draw from in order to maybe provide richer context and, and richer understanding of the world. So I guess it's a trade-off. Yep. Well, if we remember anything, it's that this show relies on the talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. Thank you to both of them. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David, to NASA, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other endeavors, investigates the consequences of technological development on society. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. Remember, this episode of Big Picture Science is Forget About It. <laughs>